Hi, welcome to Walla Moms, where we say everything that you can't say in Portland. We are going to cover the latest riot in Portland and why the police stood by and did absolutely nothing to stop it. But first, I'm going to respond to a listener criticism that this podcast is about fear-mongering. I really have no interest in fear-mongering. If I were interested in fear-mongering, believe me, I could do it all day long with COVID. I mean, the media loves those anecdotal stories about the fit young person who died of COVID. The Times did a whole article just profiling kids who've died of COVID, even though that's an extremely, extremely rare circumstance. So I could certainly cherry pick news stories about, you know, how a healthy fit yoga instructor died of COVID at 23 and fear monger very easily in that way. Portland is the city I was born in. It's the city I'm raising children in. It's the city I work in. It's the city I live in. And believe me, I have no interest or desire to engage in fear-mongering about my own city, especially when I'm a Democrat and this is a Democrat leadership city from top to bottom. But for some reason, there is this need to gaslight and protect this narrative that Portland is doing just fine and that anything negative about Portland is overblown. Part of the problem is that it's become a right-wing talking point. Fox loves that Portland's a dumpster fire because it has an interest in promoting Republican leadership, and Portland is as Democrat and as blue as it gets. But it's a fallacy to assume that just because Fox covers it, it's untrue. You need to take every story as it comes, and I urge you to investigate for yourself whether you really think Portland's okay. I get the need to tell yourself that. Believe me, I wish I could tell myself that every day and every night. It feels good. It's safer. If we say it long enough, maybe we'll believe it, and we won't feel so traumatized and so bad and so depressed about what our cities become. But I do think that there's a middle way between Fox News and the false narrative that Portland's doing great. And that's to own up to the fact that Portland is a dumpster fire, but come up with ways to make it better. And instead of blaming it on the Democratic Party generally, you can just blame it on the individual leaders. That's what we're trying to do here on Walla Moms. We can't make Portland better if we just continue to stay silent about how dangerous it is, how out of control the drug addiction and mental health crisis is. In order to solve the problems, we have to put sunlight on them and we have to name our problems. So on this podcast, we're trying to shine a light on the crisis that the city of Portland, Oregon is in so that we can fix it. This gaslighting though, where every experience that I've had in Portland is proclaimed as untrue. And on on Twitter, the Antifa and the Black Bloc people love to do this. They love to say, to do that meme where they say, I'll take things that didn't happen for 500 Alex. It's absolutely fascinating to discredit every per- negative personal experience that somebody has had with Portland. Um, and what's also fascinating is the amount of people who message me who come up to me, who recognize me and say, thanks so much for the podcast and you're totally right. Also fascinating because the nice thing is when you don't give a fuck about what you say, people can open up to you and they will tell you that you're totally right. But on Twitter and generally in the media and even the Nick Kristoff opinion article in the New York Times during the George Floyd riots in Portland, the message is, 
you know, the anarchy isn't real. The riots aren't real. This is all overblown. So did you guys know we had yet another riot? Yes, the riots are not over, guys. They are not over. This is from coin.com, October 14th, 2021. Pearl District residents to PPB, are we a lawless city? Portland police say a new state law limits their crowd control options. Portland police say a new legislation passed in Oregon dramatically limits their options when it comes to intervening during destructive protests and riots. Apparently, there were, we're going to step away from the article for a minute, there was $500,000 in damages in Portland, Oregon. And PPB is saying that the Portland Police Bureau is saying that the reason that they were not able to intervene is because they have limitations regarding the use of pepper spray and other tools that the officers have previously used. And the way that they're pacifying everybody, the public who is watching the destruction go down and who is asking at events um, such as the one covered here in this coin article, is this just a lawless city and the police are just going to sit by and allow crime to happen? What Portland Police Bureau is telling people to pacify them is that, hey, if we can identify somebody later during a follow-up investigation, that's where the consequences will come. This is apparently due to House Bill 2928. And I have taken a look at House Bill 2928 And although it significantly limits what officers are able to do, if they can declare something a riot, there is still a fair amount that they can do. And a riot is not difficult, in fact, to define. Under Oregon Revised Statutes 166.015, a person commits the crime of riot if while participating with five or more other persons, the person engages in tumultuous and violent conduct and thereby intentionally or recklessly creates a grave risk of causing public alarm. Now, I would say that hundreds of people who engage in $500,000 in damages Uh, downtown could be considered a riot under ORS 166.015. In fact, it seems like it would be easy to declare it as such. But according to these articles, the city has essentially directed PPB to stand down and has said, we need to interpret this statute that limits what PPB can do uh, for crowd control. We need to interpret it in the most conservative way, which means that we need to really just stand down. And instead of going ahead, according to PPB, instead of going ahead and declaring a riot, they have been told by the city that they need to avoid interaction at all costs. This is from coin.com, October 15th, 2021. Lawless city worry after Portland police don't stop chaos. A crowd of 100 people wreaked havoc in downtown Portland, Oregon this week, smashing storefront windows, lighting dumpsters on fire, and causing at least $500,000 in damage, but police officers did not stop them. 
The reason we did not intervene goes back to what we talked about last month with House Bill 2928 and the restrictions placed on us in a crowd control environment. Queen reports the Portland Police Lieutenant Jake Jensen said in a neighborhood meeting on Thursday, residents frustrated by the latest round of destructive demonstrations Tuesday question whether that meant anything goes now in Portland. Does that mean we are now like a lawless city? Linda Witt asked during the meeting with police. Jensen replied saying people can still face consequences later. The article then goes on to talk about the legislation in House Bill 2928. The article says the law clearly allows Portland police to use effective tools necessary to control violent crowds. House Minority Leader Christine Drazan told the Associated Press on Friday. And that's my understanding of the statute as well. According to the article, activist attorneys Christine Drazan, House Minority Leader, says are deliberately misinterpreting legislation to prevent police from intervening. They have no business putting law enforcement and community safety at risk. Portland Police Sergeant Kevin Allen told the AP that officers have been made aware of the potential implications of the legislation and that it's being analyzed by the city attorney's office. Until we have some clarity on the bill, we have to follow the most restrictive interpretation of it. So... Apparently, according to this article, 35 separate locations were targeted, including banks. It's all the ones they love. Banks, retail stores, coffee shops, and government buildings. Authorities say although police did not directly intervene, officers did give direction to disperse over a loudspeaker and a mobile field force moved in, at which point the crowd... <laughs> loudspeaker. At which the point the crowd finally splintered. So the takeaway here is that the police are being told that they have to, based on this law, they really do have to stand down and they can't do anything. And they're taking those admonitions at face value. And I suppose if the, their lawyers are telling them that that's what they need to do, that's the legal advice that they're going to follow. Even though I agree with the House Minority Leader that based on that House Bill 2928, there are certainly measures at the police officer's disposal and they could have easily declared the other night a riot very easily but they declined to do so apparently because of this bill this is from the oregonian oregon live october 13th 2021 protesters commemorating activist death damaged downtown Portland windows, comma, leave graffiti. A group of about 100 demonstrators broke windows and left graffiti scrawled on downtown Portland buildings Tuesday night at the end of a gathering commemorating the anniversary of a local activist's death. Stepping away from the article for a minute, clearly that fits within that riot statute. And that's, again, person commits the crime of riot if while participating with five or more other persons engages in tumultuous and violent conduct intentionally or recklessly creates a grave risk of causing public alarm. I mean, if that doesn't fit it, I don't know what does. But obviously, much like the interaction between Proud Boys and Antifa and the clashes that ended up leading to gunfire, the police are being told to stand down when riots occur. Back to the Oregon Live article, no arrests have been made and investigations are underway, police said Wednesday afternoon. The damage is believed to be over $500,000, according to police who refer to the demonstrators as anarchists. The vandalism, mostly near Southwest Alder Street and 2nd Avenue, happened at the end of the memorial 
Wednesday morning, large glass shards from the shattered door of the Moda Tower, 601 Southwest 2nd Avenue, still covered the sidewalk. Breaking windows is good. Was written in spray paint on a wall nearby. Across the street, there were large holes in the glass windows of Smile Direct Club, 121 Southwest Morrison Street, and the front windows, doors, and a glass fixture above the entrance of Bank of America nearby were shattered. Crews were still sweeping up glass at 7.30 a.m. The gathering was called to celebrate the life of Sean Kilaher, a self-identified anarchist and anti-fascist activist who went by the name Arminio Lewis on the two-year anniversary of his death. Kilaher was killed October 12, 2019, near the now-defunct Cider Riot, a popular hangout for Portland's far-left activist circles. According to lawyers representing a friend of Kilaher's who was there that night, the 23-year-old activist got into an argument with a group of strangers after leaving the bar. After a heated exchange, the strangers piled into a Ford SUV parked nearby and began to drive off. But the SUV pulled a U-turn and hit the gas, slamming into Kilaher, according to the lawyers. It then crashed in the Democratic Party of Oregon headquarters and stalled out on the sidewalk. Apparently, Kilaher died, and according to this Oregon Live article, no arrests have been made in his death, despite claims from his mother, Laura Kilaher, the police know who the culprits are. Laura Kilaher helped promote and advertise Tuesday's demonstration, billing it on Twitter as, quote-unquote, not a peaceful event, and, quote-unquote, a night of rage and anger. So the mother, who understandably is distraught, was apparently the, if not the ringleader of this, certainly a promoter and a encourager of the violence. The demonstration drew the ire of former state Senator Evel Gordley and longtime civil rights activist Ron Herndon, who questioned why elective officials have not had a strong united voice opposing this mayhem that is a great question you know it's so interesting how the rioters and frankly the far left people that i've talked to even some of my colleagues use apocalyptic language and hysteria to justify these riots let's put kilaher's mother aside for a minute she's a grieving mom she's understandably insane about this. So let's put her aside, but let's just talk about the far left who justify this window breaking and this mayhem. Did did that did that work? All these riots in 2020 that have continued in 2021, are you no longer afraid of the police? How did this help Kilaher who died? Like I would ask a black bloc member or an Antifa member who was out there smashing windows the other night. I understand that maybe you're doing his mother's bidding and she's a sympathetic, extremely sympathetic character in all this, but how did this help her son? Did smashing windows solve her son's murder? The justification that I hear for this, particularly during the George Floyd riots was who cares about windows when lives are being lost and we have to smash windows to prevent people from dying. But my question is, where is the off-ramp? And how many windows will you need to smash before you think racial justice is achieved? Is that really the tactic? Smashing windows? We're going to smash windows to remember Antifa members who've been killed 
and until police are dismantled, is there an off-ramp? And I know that they love to smash Starbucks and banks and what they perceive to be towers and, and businesses. But you know, they, they also smash the windows of Elephant's Deli, which is just a little business. This is from coin.com. It's from October 13th, 2021. Group leaves $500,000 in damages amid downtown Portland Memorial. Locally owned Elephant's Delicatessen was among the buildings damaged Tuesday night. Ann Weaver and her husband have owned the metro area's seven Elephant's Deli locations for a couple of decades. This is a locally owned business, folks. Their location at Southwest First and Salmon opened shortly before the start of the 2020 riots and pandemic. It had never been vandalized before now. So lucky. I, I love that Coin says had never been vandalized before now because it's, why, why did they say that? Because it's de rigueur to vandalize businesses in the city of Portland. And Elephants stands out because it hadn't yet been vandalized. That sentence alone is alarming. And if you live in the city of Portland, it should alarm you. It should alarm and upset you that it would be a point of information worthy of reporting on that a business had not yet been vandalized in the city of Portland. Back to the article. We always try to be the business for the force of good, Weaver said, adding that they've stayed afloat with the help of federal pandemic funds. We're a B Corp, and we strongly believe in equity and social justice. We provide meals to shelters and homeless and partner with all kinds of organizations all the time, even through COVID. Weaver said one of their managers at World Trade Center location told them Wednesday morning that five huge windows had been broken. Just immense sadness, you know. Here we were thinking that we had maybe turned the corner of this really, really arduous hard time we've all endured coming on two years now, she said. Minkus Maps also spoke out about the violence. Please stop. If you're doing that in order to liberate people of color, I can tell you as a person of color that violence and vandalism does not make me freer. It doesn't make my kids freer, said Commissioner Mingus Maps. In fact, it makes Portland more dangerous. So we have a black city commissioner saying, please stop this. Now, I understand that this latest riot was about a white activist and that a lot of these people were spurred on by his grieving mother. But in general, the window smashing, my understanding in the last couple years has been, was initiated and has been continued in the name of George Floyd and in the name of black people generally who've been killed or roughed up by the police. And here we have a Portland city commissioner who's black, Mingus Map, saying, please stop. My guess is that most of these Antifa and black bloc members that are doing the window smashing because it's in Portland, Oregon, are probably mostly white. And wouldn't it be the anti-racist thing to do? Wouldn't it be the sensitive and just thing to do to listen to the Black City Commissioner who's telling you, white Antifa people, 
please stop smashing windows. This is not making me freer or assisting me or my children in any way. What would white Antifa have to say about that? And what would they have to say about the local and small businesses that they have destroyed, put out of business, and and ir- unjustifiably put fear into? Um, for example, there is a place downtown called Petunia's Pie and Pastries. And I don't know if this sign is still up. It's on 610 Southwest 12th. But this sign was up as of June 16th, 2021. And it says, we are a small woman and locally owned business. We are struggling like so many of us in this hard time and love our community. Please don't cause us any damage. Similarly, in Northeast Alberta, Seventeen oh five Northeast Alberta Street, courtesy janitorial services. They had a sign up as of September first, twenty twenty one. We are a small black owned, family operated business. We do not have insurance that pays for graffiti removal. Please do not tag our building. We love our community. Please love us back. How sad that these small businesses, including these women-owned and black-owned progressive businesses, have to put up signs begging Antifa and Black Bloc and the anarchists not to hurt them. Don't hurt me signs. What a sad, sad commentary on the alleged social justice aims of these anarchists, Black Bloc, and Antifa members. People who are theoretically and intellectually on your side in regard to progressivism, who some of them happen to own small businesses and they're telling you to stop it. They are begging you to spare them. And yet this violence continues Uh, We're now into October of 2021, and I know that these latest riots were not focused on police brutality in regard to blacks. They were focused on this white Antifa member who was killed. But in general, please heed the plea of the black city commissioner, the progressive business leaders in the city, the people who are intellectually on the same page with you and want to see progress, do not, no rational person wants to see blacks killed and roughed up by the police. No, nobody does. And most people in Portland would consider themselves pretty progressive. And in fact, I think most business owners, particularly small business owners, myself included, would consider themselves progressive and intellectually probably in agreement with a lot of the just intellectual ideas about what a just society looks like. Maybe not in terms of disbanding or getting rid of the police, but certainly in terms of 
black people not being treated unfairly or roughed up by the police, by the police not being hard on black people. And most rational people agree that the statistics tend to bear out that police are harder on black people. Most rational people don't want to see that happen and agree that we've got to do something about it. But smashing windows ain't it. And this idea that the police are just going to stand down um, because they've been told that due to this legislation, there's nothing that they can do in the face of riots is really a green light for the anarchists. It's a green light for this kind of violence and destruction and mayhem. And saying, well, there may be consequences later is not going to deter these people. And I think the police know that if anything, saying things like there will be consequences later is just an affirmation of that green light. Just do what you're going to do. And we're going to go ahead and stand down. Let's switch gears and talk about the Oregon gubernatorial race. Apparently Nick Kristoff who I lost interest in when he wrote an article in the New York Times talking about how Trump's anarchists don't really exist in Portland. And, um, you know, going into October 2021 with more anarchy and more window smashing, we all know that that was patently false and that we can see with our own eyes that they certainly exist and are loud and proud. Uh, so he doesn't interest me, but I want to thank the listener who put Betsy Johnson on my radar. Now, I have heard Betsy Johnson speak. She is running for governor. She's a very practical, very smart person. Although she is a Democrat in the Oregon Senate, she is running unaffiliated with any party. According to a listener... She's a dual engine helicopter pilot and she's pro-choice anti-Trump. I looked into her credentials on Vote Smart, which is a website that was formerly called Project Vote Smart. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization that collects and distributes information on candidates for public office in the US. And that listener tip about Betsy Johnson being pro-choice and anti-Trump has proved out true. Um, Narol and Planned Parenthood endorse her 100%. But she is practical. She wants to reduce the tent camping on the street. She voted no, in fact, on House Bill 3115, which was enacted in April 2021 and formalizes the allowance of homeless camping throughout the state of Oregon. Advocates who were for that bill wanted to allow homeless camping in public spaces, in parks, under an overpass or wherever they can find shelter and safety. Um, they wanted them to have the right to camp on public property. And under that bill, they in fact do, that passed. Betsy Johnson voted against that bill. You know, even Dan Ryan, who wants to put homeless villages in neighborhoods, even he was against that bill. This is according to the Portland Mercury, which is a local publication, June 10th, 2021. City Commissioner Dan Ryan, who oversees the city's housing-related bureau, suggested the bill would complicate the city's current campsite cleanup program, 
Ryan is expected to announce a new city ordinance that would identify public property that could be converted into sanctioned outdoor camping spaces. Well, unfortunately, what happened is that the bill allowing people to camp wherever they want in the state of Oregon did pass, and uh, Dan Ryan's idiotic idea about sanctioning outdoor camping spaces in Portland neighborhoods has also started to come to fruition, unfortunately. But Betsy Johnson is against tent camping, and she is also endorsed by housing equity organizations. So she's clearly interested in solving the homeless problem. She just doesn't think that it's humane or should be lawful to allow people to live in a tent wherever they want. She's far more practical than that. This is from Willamette Week, October 14th, 2021. Senator Betsy Johnson is running for Oregon governor as an unaffiliated candidate. Oregonians deserve better than the excesses and nonsense of the extreme left and the radical right, Johnson wrote in an email today. Johnson, 70, long the most conservative elected member of her party. So this is interesting. William Week is referring to her as a conservative. Will attempt to carve out a third lane in what's already a crowded field of contenders for governor. In her announcement email, Johnson said it was the Democratic Party that had changed, not her. The decision to run independent of any party by law requires me to give up my Democratic Party registration by next spring, she wrote. Rest assured, my bedrock values will not change. I was raised in a moderate Republican family and became a Democrat because the Republican Party had moved too far to the right. For 20 years, I've been an independent-minded, pro-choice, pro-jobs Democrat, proudly serving the people of Northwest Oregon. This is who I am. Fascinatingly, Oregon Live, the Oregonian newspaper on, online, refers to Johnson as a moderate. So Willamette Week calls her a conservative. The Oregonian calls her a moderate. This is from October 14th, 2021, Oregon Live. Betsy Johnson, a moderate Democratic state senator, is running for governor as a member of no party. So they're calling her in the media either a conservative or a moderate which potentially spells doom for her, given that the most populous city in the state of Oregon is Portland and is, I would characterize the majority of Portland voters as far left, certainly not moderate and certainly not conservative. But I think and I hope that a lot of Oregonians are tired of the chicanery going on in Portland and this stand down lawless mentality and this idea that it's humane to let people in tents sleep in tents and not only that but that it's ludicrous to quote unquote clean up downtown by doing what Dan Ryan wants to do and what Sam Adams wants to do and sprinkling the homeless throughout neighborhoods i think most Portlanders would agree if you really pressed them and asked them if it was humane to allow people to sleep in tents, I think they would agree that no, it's not. And I think if we presented them with good solutions, you know, you know, obviously the knee-jerk reaction is just they need 
you know, the homeless need more housing, the homeless need more housing. But I think if we presented the majority of Oregonians with solutions like mental health and drug addiction treatment and care, and I don't expect the idea that, that homeless people can get conservatorships that will actually mandate that they get the treatment or the help that they need. And by homeless, I, I don't mean the families who are down on their luck in shelters. I don't mean mama working five jobs. I mean the people in tents. You know, that really our crisis is in the service resistant people who live in tents. And by service resistant, I mean the ones who are not willing to go to the shelters, the ones who, when Laurel Hirsch Park was cleaned up, opted to refuse to go into shelter. And that was the, the majority of them. So if you have the majority of your homeless population um, who is living in tents refusing services, you have a re I, I think most Oregonians would agree that that means that you have a real issue and that at some point their interest in refusing services and refusing treatment and just sort of living their trauma out in front of all of us and decomposing wherever they want to um, according to this bill that passed in April 2021 on, on any public land in the state of Oregon um, according to this law that you can pitch a tent within 10 feet of a residential door or the door of a business, I think most Oregonians would say that that's actually unreasonable and that service-resistant populations' right to do as they choose at some point does come into conflict with the workaday citizens of Oregon. And that we and our children and just generally the citizens of this state should not be subjected to what we're now seeing every day, which is uh, violence, fights, people walking around covered in sores, publicly shooting up, screaming at each other. Uh, I know that it is legal to be nude in Portland, but just really gratuitous nudity, public sex. Um, there was, on Documenting Portland on Instagram, there was a man running around with his pants down with an erect penis chasing women into buildings. Things like that that are tolerated on a day-to-day -day basis. That is real trauma and... At some point, you have the right to peaceable enjoyment of your city. And watching people defecate on city sidewalks and sleep in tents or on sidewalks is not only traumatizing, it signals to those of us living here, growing up here, certainly to children, that we don't, we really don't care about people who are at their most vulnerable. And we, this city really doesn't care about people who not only can't house themselves, but can't find a private in, enclosed latrine in which to defecate. 
can't have addictions that are so out of control that they can't stop themselves from shooting up on a public sidewalk, are vomiting, are just really at rock bottom. And if we did care about them, we would ensure that despite their diseased brain telling them not to get help, we would ensure that they did get help and we would ensure that they were not living in tents. Instead, we've given the green light to the tents. We've, we've, we've completely overcorrected. The green light's been given to the tents. And in fact, now we're setting up outdoor shelters within neighborhoods where people are trying to work and pay taxes and raise children. We're setting, Dan Ryan's setting up these outdoor shelters where um, people will just be allowed to live. When really the message should be, we care about you too much to allow you to live like this. And instead we're going to get you the help that you so desperately need. And one thing that I like about Betsy Johnson is she pays attention to data and she's interested in whether programs actually work. This is from OPB, February 4th, 2020. Once an afterthought, housing now dominates Oregon's legislative landscape. Betsy Johnson says that the state is good at responding to a crisis du jour, says in this article. And I absolutely agree with her. What, what the state of Oregon and what the city of Portland love to do is panic throw everything against the wall and see what sticks, like these this ridiculous outdoor mask mandate, for instance. And they engage in policies and throw money at things based on panicky decision-making and behavior, and they don't focus on data. And what Betsy said is, we are uniquely bad at checking to see, are the services being delivered appropriately for the maximum bang for the buck for the taxpayers? And over the passage of time, are we making a difference in whatever the articulated problem was? When do we go back and take a look and say, did the trend line go down? Great question, and one that I wish more people asked. So, super interested in Betsy Johnson. Thank you so much to the listener who put her on my radar. She is really interesting. And so far, she is the most interesting candidate that Walla Mom sees for the gubernatorial race. Let's switch gears. Have any of you heard of the term two-spirit? I was introduced to it by a friend who works for the state government and who was given a workplace training about the term two-spirit and was told that it is a ancient indigenous term that refers to native peoples who embrace both the male and the female gender. And this was her workplace training about the term two-spirit. And I took it on face value. And in fact, I heard it from many uh, friends, family members, who told me that uh, the native and indigenous term two-spirit was an ancient concept uh, that is sacred and originated out of tribes. What is fascinating is that I have recently learned that although of course it's true that indigenous people 
just like any group of people, have had citizens within their community who have embraced traits of both genders. The term two-spirit is not an ancient term. In fact, it is a relatively new term that was coined in 1990, many people believe, by a white man in Winnipeg, Canada. This information absolutely blew me away. I looked into it and it's true. This is from rewirenewsgroup.com and it this that's not a publication I would normally read or normally cite to you all, but this article was actually written by an indigenous person, a Native American woman, um, Ojibwe woman, who is also a journalist named Mary Annette Pember. And October 13th, 2016, she wrote a commentary called Two-Spirit Tradition, Far from Ubiquitous Among Tribes. And the takeaway, we'll get into this article a bit, but just as an overarching summary before we start, basically what she says is complete common sense and just not something I'd ever thought about because I I was just sort of going along with what I'd been told that two-spirit was some ancient indigenous term and probably because I wrongly uh, categorize indigenous people as a homogenous group um, because of the term native and because of the term indigenous to put all native people in, in one group. We do this linguistically and it's reductivist and we forget that there are really hundreds of Native American tribes, and that uh, they're all different. And when you think about it, that's common sense, and it should not come as a surprise to anybody, particularly a um, somebody born in America who's taken any kind of history class about indigenous people, or and particularly to somebody with Native American heritage who has a tribe or a number of tribes in their ancestral background and has any thoughts or facts whatsoever about about those tribes. And they're all very different. And of course, they're not all homogenous people that used a term called two-spirit. That is a fiction that has been recently created and apparently is being perpetuated in workplace trainings. So this article is by Mary Annette Pember is absolutely fascinating. And what she says is, as a journalist and a Ojibwe woman, I am troubled by the claims that Native peoples historically described LGBTQ folks as two-spirited and celebrated them as healers and shamans because the claims are mostly unfounded or only partially true. 
A fellow journalist once described me as a Native American scold in his editorial supporting the use of Native American sports mascots. He disagreed with my objections to their use. At the risk of forever branding myself as that skillet-wielding scold, I am now voicing my concern over the use of the term two-spirit to describe LGBTQ people. My concern is not so much over the use of the words, but over the social meme they have generated that has morphed into a cocktail of historical revisionism, wishful thinking, good intentions, and white entitled appropriation. One image in particular that comes to mind is a 2013 Google Plus post of a Native American elder with the following quote, Christian leaders stand on our soil and claim gay marriage has never occurred here. Over 130 tribes in every region of North America perform millions of same-sex marriages for hundreds of years. Their statements are both hateful and ignorant. Your homosexual was our two-spirit people, and we consider them sacred. Unfortunately, as often happens, the complex work and research of anthropologists has been used to paint an overly wide brush of Native culture, conveniently overlooking distinct cultural language differences that Native peoples hold crucial to their identity. As a journalist and Ojibwe woman, I am troubled by the claims that Native peoples historically described LGBTQ folks as two-spirited and celebrated them as healers and shamans because the claims are mostly unfounded or only partially true. These sort of simplified black and white depictions of Native culture and history perpetuate indiscriminate appropriation of Native peoples. Although the current new meme or legend surrounding the term two-spirit is certainly laudable for helping LGBTQ people create their own, more empowering terminology to describe themselves, it carries some questionable baggage. Wikipedia has a refreshingly nuanced definition for the term. Two-spirited explains is a modern umbrella term used by some indigenous North Americans to describe gay, lesbian, bisexual, and gender variant individuals in their communities. The term was adopted in 1990 at an indigenous lesbian and gay gathering to encourage the replacement of the anthropological term Burdashi, a non-native word associated with prostitutes. While some have found the term a useful tool for intertribal organizing, not all native cultures conceptualize gender or sexuality this way, and most tribes use names in their own languages. While pan-Indian terms are not always appropriate or welcome, the term has generally received more acceptance and use than the term it replaced. Non-native anthropologist, so this is my aside, white guy, non-native anthropologist Will Roscoe gets most of the public credit for coining the term two-spirit. Okay, so step away from the article for a minute. You guys, she's telling us, this indigenous author is telling us that two-spirit is a term that was coined by a white man in 1990 at a gay gathering in Winnipeg. And it's an umbrella term that not, certainly not all native cultures use. And in fact, many native tribes have their own languages and their own terms. Really, so really two-spirit is a term that a white man used as an umbrella for indigenous people. 
a modern, the, the article says a, a modern umbrella term to describe, for instance, gender variant individuals in their communities who are native or indigenous people. And of course, this umbrella term has more recently, especially very recently, I don't remember hearing Two-Spirit at all in the 90s. I literally learned about it, I, I mean, very, I think in 2021, just very recently, um, which might be revealing of my own ignorance, but certainly I did not hear Indigenous or Native people using it or speaking freely with the term Two-Spirit to describe gender variant individuals. And of course, now I'm hearing far more of that, Native and non-Native people using the word Two-Spirit. And I absolutely understand why you would want a more empowering term to describe a gender variant individual than Burdash or Burdashi, which is apparently what white settlers use to describe those individuals. So of course you would want to change that, but it's just fascinating that it is not a, that not only was it apparently coined by a white man, but it was, it was not a ancient, this is not an ancient term, although it, it's certainly an ancient concept. Of course, there have always been gender variant individuals in society, in every society, including native society. So that should not be a surprise to anybody, but to pass off the term two-spirit as some ancient term that natives or indigenous people have always used is, is of course, now after reading this article in Rewire, I just go, of course that's common sense. I mean, you forget that all these tribes had their own customs, their own language. And of course, not all indigenous or native people, particularly not all tribes are going to be homogenous or are going to be similar or are going to treat gender varying people the same way. And this article says, despite new age and popular ideals to the contrary, there is no universal native American culture or spirituality. There are over 500 federally recognized native tribes in the United States speaking several hundred languages. The author says, I would never primarily describe myself as Native American. I am Ojibwe of the Red Cliff Band of Wisconsin. Most of us feel quite strongly about the distinct nature of our tribal cultures and languages, most of which are oral and handed down through generations. Unfortunately, Depending on an oral tradition to impart our ways to future generations, open the floodgates for early non-native explorers, missionaries, and anthropologists to write books describing native peoples and therefore bolstering their own role as experts. These writings were and still entrenched in the perspective of authors who were and are mostly white men. Two-spirit is a totally contemporary term. It was brought to the table because anthropologists referred to us as Burdashi. Native LGBTQ people wanted a term that could give us the opportunity to take back our identities. So much has been lost. According to this article, there is ve- it's very difficult for Native people to find any reference to LGBTQ people from elders or scholars. 
And um, the article says that it's probably because they've been going underground for so long. And um, most of the, according to the article, written archival information that we have about Native people begins with European contra- contact. To the extent that Native and Indigenous people have embraced this term two-spirit, I think that's great. But I also think it's totally ironic that the idea is to try to get away from categories imposed on Native people by this European contact, this contact with these settlers, and that the term two-spirit was coined by a white non-Indigenous man. (laughs) The article continues, I have often been cornered, the the author says, by well-meaning liberals who hold forth authoritatively about the esteem in which traditional Native American culture holds LGBTQ folks. Years of colonization and appropriation by European invaders, as well as the well-intentioned religious hegemony that demonized our spirituality and way of life through boarding schools and other means, has made Indian country much like the rest of rural America in terms of enlightened treatment of LGBTQ folks. In fact, some tribes have created laws specifically banning same-sex marriage. Gender-variant individuals have a hard way to go in and out of Indian country. The article describes a painful incident where a native person attended a traditional cultural event and brought his husband and was told that he was flaunting his sexuality and was instructed not to sit with his clan. Even though clan identity and affiliation was central to his tribe and defined his spiritual and social activity for his tribe, the article says, I asked my elders what was going on, but they just shook their heads. I was so disappointed. I haven't returned since. So as the article says, Native Americans are disappointingly and inconveniently human, just like the rest of the population. Describing us in any other terms reflects a particularly resistant form of racism called entitlement. Human beings are pretty complicated, and each tribe had their own way of describing gender variation. The white man who it seems may have coined this two-spirit term in Winnipeg in 1990. His name is Will Roscoe. He has a website, willsworld.org. It says, Roscoe holds a PhD in history of consciousness (laughs) from the University of California, Santa Cruz. He's an adjunct adjunct faculty for the Institute of Integral Studies. And he is white as can be. The Encyclopedia Britannica, as you guys may know, has a website. And according to Britannica.com, Burdash or Burdashi, also called since 1990 Two-Spirit, is an early European designation for American Indians in Canada called First Nation Peoples, who did not conform to Western gender and sexual norms. The term has been utilized in anthropology and other disciplines to define American Indian homosexuality, transgenderism, and intersexuality. Many consider the term to be offensive, however, and in 1990, the alternative term, two-spirit, emerged. 
However, according to Britannica.com and consistent with the article from, from the Native woman uh, who wrote the Rewire article, acceptance of these gender-variant people varied from tribe to tribe. While some gender-variant individuals were culturally integrated and held roles that contributed to their communities, others were rejected and ostracized. Finding that Western terms, concepts, and identities such as gay, lesbian, transgender, and intersex emphasized the physical and sexual at the expense of the spiritual, they sought a term that would reconnect gender or sexual identity with native identity and culture. In 1990, at the third annual American Indian Gay and Lesbian Conference in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the term two-spirit was designated as a replacement for Burdashi because this term was essentially recently created it as no linguistic equivalent or meaning in other nations and tribes and it does not serve as a replacement for the historical and traditional terms already in use or available in other nations and tribes which stepping away from the Britannica explanation of two-spirit makes sense because it was coined by a white person and is an umbrella term and as the Native woman who wrote the Rewire article explains, Native American spirituality is not some sort of umbrella thing. There are hundreds of tribes, they're speaking hundreds of different kinds of languages, and they have hundreds of their own traditions. Britannica.com notes that Two-Spirit has been met with a variety of criticisms among Native Americans, probably similar to the Rewire article. So absolutely fascinating. Mind-blowing, turns out Two-Spirit is not some ancient blanket umbrella Native American term. Now, I don't know if we can add all that historical information to a workplace training about diversity in regard to gender or gender uh, variant people. But certainly, we need to revise our thinking and possibly even our use of the term two-spirit. Given that it was coined by a white person or at least um, may have originated by him in 1990 as a blanket and umbrella term, it seems that maybe we should just allow Native American indigenous people to tell us how they would like to be referred to. And we should not, as white people, be walking around lecturing each other about how ancient and how precious the term two-spirit is. Because as the Native American author from Rewire explains, they're human like everybody else. And in fact, many of them are super bigoted and have no room for, just like a lot of other societies, are not progressive or forward thinking and have no room in their culture for gender variant people and are not accepting and are in fact exclusive, are in fact not inclusive of what a white person might refer to as a two-spirit person. They're actually not accepting of that. It's not some Native American fanciful tradition whereby gender variant people are accepted and welcomed into the tribe and treated as some kind of 
universally accepted gender variant category. One thing that's really funny is apparently in researching this, it turns out, and I didn't see this tweet, it escaped me, um, but apparently Jason Mraz, the singer, referred to himself as Two-Spirit and came out as Two-Spirit. And he was immediately on Twitter slammed as coming out as Two-Spirit because he's white. And the Twitter feedback was that he um, cannot use that term as a white man. So apparently, even though Two-Spirit may have been coined by a white man, white men cannot use that term to define themselves. <laughs> and some of the Twitter comments are, even though I find this absolutely absurd, are really hilarious. Like, Jason Mraz is a white settler. Turn around, my favorite is, turn around Columbus, you are lost. <laughs> it says that he came out as two-spirit. He was completely and totally slammed. One person wrote simply, flat out, you don't get to call yourself two-spirit if you aren't native, don't. If you are native, it's okay to identify as two-spirit. If you are native, it's okay. But if you're non-native, nobody gives a fuck about your opinion on the subject. Turn around, Columbus, you are lost. Also, another said, well, I guess it's white bisexuals call out other white bisexuals time. Jason Mraz, you 100% cannot call yourself Two-Spirit. The only folks that can use that label are Two-Spirit people indigenous to the Americas. That's it. Learn a thing. Be a good queer with, you know, they love to write with periods as punctuation in between all the words to sort of clap at somebody who's not towing the progressive line. But what's hilarious is apparently it was, <laughs> I think you could critique this two-spirit thing, especially if it was really coined by this white anthropologist with his this um, willsworld.org website, this Will Roscoe guy. I think you can criticize Two-Spirit as being a part of colonization, as being racist, as being appropriating, as fairly unjustly labeling and using an umbrella term for indigenous and native people who actually have many, many, many different tribes and as perpetuating the notion that they that native people all fall under one umbrella and that their spirituality is like the author and rewriter was saying is universally the same this is all so unintentionally hilarious Um, more twitter comments about jason mraz very important jason mraz has never and will never be a hashtag two spirit jason mraz is not indigenous to the american continent Jason Mraz is a white settler appropriating a pan-indigenous term coined by trans, intersex, asexual, queer, plus indigenous folks to describe ourselves. 
If you're not native, it's 99% likely you don't know what Two-Spirit really means. It's an umbrella term for queer identities with native communities and comes with community roles, another tweeter explained. If you're not part of indigenous community, you can't take on that role, thus you can't be Two-Spirit. Oh my God. This is, do these people not know where the, I, the term Two-Spirit actually came from? I mean, yes, this Will Roscoe is gay and used it, did, did use it um, himself, but he is not indigenous. <laughs> uh, more Twitter comments about Jason Mraz just because it is so good. This isn't about exclusion. It's about preserving its actual meaning. It's us putting our foot down as two-spirit queer natives and saying, you don't get to take it and distort it for what it actually is. This is so amazing to me. A white man in 1990 coins a term and applies it to Native Americans. And I guess if they want to claim it and appropriate it as their own, like let's say, I guess you could say a black person claims the N-word and reappropriates that and takes it as um, something powerful and turns it around as a word that only they can use, I, I guess maybe some of these tweeters might say that they have taken Will Roscoe's two-spirit term and they've used it for themselves to reclaim their own identities. But I, based on these Twitter comments that I'm reading, I don't think anybody knows the etymology of the term two-spirit. <laughs> Here's another one. Non-natives who try to co-op two-spirit as some trendy term their wives just picked out of the air are perpetuating settler violence Tribal people, especially indigenous, queers, and trans folks have endured and survived for centuries. Oh my God. So what it sounds like to me is that these tweeters who are demonizing Jason Mraz clearly have no idea where this term came from and think that it's something that indigenous people... I, I think what I was taught that it's something that indigenous people came up with and that it's an ancient it's an ancient term that is and was founded in indigenous communities. Somebody else writes, first of all, that's not how two-spirit works at all. Secondly, let's let native people be two-spirit. If you're not native, you're not two-spirit. I mean, kudos to Will Roscoe, um, the white anthropologist who has created this term that is obviously on fire and super hip and apparently um, being embraced by all the uh, lefty, progressive, we need to get it right and say it right, shaming and ridiculing types on Twitter who are lecturing each other about how to good, be good people and how to be good gay people and how to be good left gay native people. Absolutely amazing that he was able to coin a term that is that now cannot be used by white people. I wonder if Will Roscoe would describe himself as Two-Spirit. I wonder if he would, or I wonder if he only 
uses Two-Spirit for Native people, in which case, either way, is he a racist? Is he a racist for coining a term and applying it to Native people instead of letting the tribe themselves use the term for their own gender variant people, which they all apparently have. According to the Rewire article, they all have their own terms for that. So why wouldn't you use the tribal original native term in regard to the particular tribe that you're studying? So interesting that he came up with his own term as a white man. And so interesting that maybe he can't even use that term to describe himself. So either he's using that term to group a whole bunch of people who are not of his race under an umbrella, or he um, may be using that term to describe himself. Um, And apparently on left-wing Twitter and progressive shame Twitter, that is not allowed. Anyway, that's your lesson for the day on the term two-spirit. So next time you're at a workplace retreat, and somebody starts telling you that Two-Spirit is an ancient Native American tradition, you can get on Rewire and get on Encyclopedia Britannica and frankly get on Wikipedia, which Rewire cites um, pretty substantially in regard to the etymology of the term Two-Spirit. Thanks so much for joining us on Walla Moms. If you want to support us, you can like and subscribe to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a good rating. Give us some good commentary. It really actually does help us show up more on feeds and tell a friend. The best people, some of the most interesting people that I've met while doing this podcast are friends of friends who fell in love with it and sent me a message and said that they were referred by somebody. And some of the most interesting insights into what's going on around Portland that I get are friends of friends who heard about the podcast and are now devoted listeners. So thank you. I love you all and I will see you next time.